Well, poverty is not anything that somebody uh, uh, d- desires, that somebody strives for. In uh, 2015, the World Bank Group did a study, and at that point, 734 million people worldwide lived on less than $2 a day. 734 million people. And that was actually down from the number in 1990, which was 1.9 billion people. Uh, 1.9 billion people lived on less than $2 a day. And if you think about that, that's, what is that? That's roughly $740, $750 for a year. That's not much, right? That's not much at all. And unfortunately, even though we can pat ourselves on the back as a world because that number went down from 1990 to 2015, the expectations for 2020 are that number will rise for the first time since 1998 because of COVID-19 and also the oil glut in a lot of these countries where you see a lot of poverty. They are reliant upon oil being a booming industry. And because it's not right now, they're expecting at the World Bank Group, at least, that these poverty numbers are going to increase, again, for the first time since 1998. Nobody puts experiencing poverty at the top of their bucket list. Nobody says, you know what, this year, part of my New Year's resolutions are, I want to experience what it's like to live on less than $2 a day. None of us have a goal to say that I want to be poor. I want to be impoverished. The Bible addresses poverty, addresses the poor. In the Old Testament, God Uh, set up specific laws for the Israelites to make sure that they were caring for the fatherless, for the widows, for those that were oppressed, for those that were needy. In the New Testament, you see Jesus commending the offering of the widow, the the widow's might, when she brought just those two small coins. And Jesus commends her that even in her poverty, she was giving from what she had to the Lord. And then, of course, there's Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, when uh, he's been anointed with this costly perfume and Some were indignant, saying, well, that should have been sold to give to the poor, even though we know that Judas was thinking to himself, well, I can skim off the top of what was sold at that point. Uh, Jesus says, look, you're always going to have the poor with you. See, poverty is nothing new. It's not anything that's a a, a contemporary problem that's never been here. It's always been here. And Jesus says there in Matthew 26, 11, at least until the kingdom, it's always going to be here. But yet it's not anything that any of us want. None of us desire to be poor, but there is a poverty, a different kind of poverty, that we should desire. In fact, there's a different kind of poverty that as Christian men, we should desire to the point that if we don't have this poverty, we won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is the type of poverty that Jesus is addressing here in Matthew chapter 5, and it has nothing to do with what you wear or what you eat or what you lack. It has nothing to do with what's in your bank account or rather what's not in your bank account. This type of poverty is a a different kind of poverty. It's a spiritual poverty that Jesus says is absolutely essential if you and I want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount, and we're not going to study the entire Sermon on the Mount this summer, but just the Beatitudes. And This morning, we'll get into this first beatitude together. But Matthew chapter 5, picking up in verse 1, it says this, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... I want us to stop there for a second, because I'd like us to get the, the background and the setting for this sermon, the background and the setting for the beatitudes. Jesus has gone up on this mountain, the, the Mount of Beatitudes, 
And he sat down and, and it says that his disciples have come to him. But we need to understand what we're talking about with these crowds and these disciples. If you look back across the page, or maybe a page back in your Bible, you've got in chapter four, the beginning there, the temptation of Jesus. Now, when in Jesus's earthly ministry did the temptation occur? It was right after his baptism, right? And his baptism was his beginning of his earthly ministry. It was the inauguration of his earthly ministry. Three years he would serve, three years he would minister on earth, and the baptism launched that ministry. Well, right after that, he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he experiences the 40 days and 40 nights of temptation in the wilderness. After that, verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4, he hears that John's been arrested. He goes up into uh, to, to Nazareth, or leaves Nazareth, rather, and goes to Capernaum by the sea, He's ministering there in Galilee. He's beginning to teach. He's doing these things. If you think to Mark's gospel, he's residing there at the, the home of Peter's mother-in-law, and he's healing, and, and all the crowds there in Mark's gospel are coming to him and, and bringing them the lame and the sick for him to heal and the demon-possessed for him to cast out demons. And Jesus' popularity and fame is growing and growing and growing. And then in Matthew four eighteen, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee there near Capernaum, and he finds Peter, Simon, and he finds Andrew, these fishermen, and he calls to them and he says, follow me. And they leave their nets and they follow him. And they go on a little further and he sees the sons of thunder, right? James and John. And he calls them and he says, follow me. And they leave their nets and they go and they follow Jesus. And so he's called some of his disciples, though not all of them yet. But Jesus, again, people are saying, you, you need to come hear this man as, as it's recorded in Mark's gospel. He teaches as one with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And so the the crowds are uh, amassing. And it says in verse 25, great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem to Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So people are coming from all over Israel, flocking north into Capernaum, into this small town by the Sea of Galilee to see and to hear and to learn from Jesus. And then we get to Matthew chapter five. So this is the very beginning towards the outset of the ministry of Jesus that we find the Sermon on the Mount. And it's all these crowds. And it says in 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, when you read the word disciples there, don't think the 12. Don't think the 12. Because one of the disciples who's actually pretty significant to the book of Matthew, and that would be who? Matthew. Has not even been called at this point. Matthew doesn't come to follow Jesus until Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9.9 9 records the, the, the calling of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was sitting outside the synagogue and he was collecting taxes from people and he was working for Rome on behalf of Rome with the people. He was a detestable individual in the eyes of so many of his Jewish brethren because they viewed him as a, as a traitor. But it's not until Matthew chapter nine that Jesus calls Matthew to come follow him. So Matthew's not even here at this point in time. So when you read disciples, what you th should think are just those that look at Jesus and say, man, this is a phenomenal, incredible, powerful rabbi. I wanna know more about him. And so they're flocking to Jesus to find out what does it look like to, to be his follower, to be a disciple. So his disciples came and sat down on this mountain with him to hear from him, to hear him teach. It says he opened up his mouth and said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, we talked about that word last week. It's that word in the Greek that means happy or fortunate but not happy or fortunate the way that a televangelist wants you to believe you should be happy and fortunate because a televangelist is not going to stand up and have his first words out of his mouth say, blessed are the poor in anything, right? They're going to say, no, you're blessed when you're 
wealthy. You're blessed when you're healthy. You're blessed when you're prosperous, when you name it and claim it, when you are living your best life now. That's when you're blessed. And so this isn't blessed according to the world's economy, but blessed according to God's economy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, we talked about that phrase last week as well in our introduction, that the kingdom of heaven is that future uh, reign of Jesus Christ as the king. It's inaugurated the millennial kingdom and will continue on through that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth and pass that into the new heavens and new earth. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is portraying for us what the kingdom citizen looks like. And the first characteristic, the first attribute we see here is that they are poor in spirit. The word poor is from a, a Greek word that in classical Greek referenced a, a beggar, somebody who is absolutely destitute, who had nothing to their name, who was completely dependent on the goodwill of others. Think about the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you have Lazarus, and Lazarus is literally living in the doorstep of this rich man's house. Why? Because Lazarus had nothing to his name, and he was dependent on the scraps, on the crumbs from this man's table to survive. This is a, a poor man, the way that Jesus is using this word poor, poor in spirit. But it's not always connected to, to physical poverty, though that's often the way it's described. Think about the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 Jesus writes this letter to this church and he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, and here's our word, poor, blind, and naked. So you have this church in Laodicea that's from an earthly standard, from a worldly standard, doing really well for itself. The, the inhabitants, the citizens, the, the members of this church are saying, we're good, we're fine. We're rich, we are wealthy, we have nothing that we need, but Jesus says, no, in fact, you are quite the opposite. You are poor, it's the same word. You're destitute. You are beggars, blind and naked. And so as we look at our text in Matthew chapter five, verse three, if this word can mean physically poor, but it can also mean a, a, a more metaphorical uh, poverty, what is Jesus driving at here? And I think we see the answer in the modifier there. Blessed are you who are poor in Spirit, poor in spirit. So Jesus is not addressing a physical poverty, though sometimes physical poverty does accompany spiritual poverty. What he's primarily addressing here is that this is a, a poverty in spirit. We see the parallel to this, or, or at least the parallel in teaching. Maybe it's a different sermon in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so many people want to say, well, Jesus is talking about physical poverty there and spiritual poverty here, but I don't think that measures up. I think he's talking about the same thing in both of those instances. I think what we see in Matthew's gospel is a more detailed description of what Jesus actually said than what we see in Luke's gospel. And one of the hermeneutical principles as we're reading and interpreting the Bible is when we have a parallel account, we should let the more detailed account inform the less detailed account. So I think in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus is driving at the same principle that he's driving at here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor spiritually. Jesus addressed the poor in his preaching in Luke 4, 18. Luke 4, 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. It's our same word there, to the beggars, to the destitute. Luke 7, 22. And he answered them. They came to to find out. John, John wants us to find out, are, are you him? Are you the Messiah? Remember, John's in prison at this point. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Well, is Jesus talking about the physical poor here or the spiritual poor here? And I think the answer is yes. It's both and. But the good news has far more to do with their spiritual poverty than it does their material poverty, right? The good news that Jesus has, Jesus wasn't promising them health, wealth, and prosperity here and now. He wasn't sending them out to preach the good news to the poor with money bags in hand to hand them to the poor and say, here, be blessed and and experience wealth now where once you experienced need. Now, the message that Jesus has, it's it's similar to when Jesus said, I I came not because the, the healthy need a physician, but because who needs a physician? The sick. Well, we understand that Jesus is not talking about the literal sick there, is he? He's talking about the spiritual sick, right? Or when he said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus isn't saying that he came to play a gigantic game of hide and seek during his earthly ministry, right? No, he's coming to find the spiritually lost. So when Jesus says that he came to preach good news to the poor, I think primarily he's saying, I came to preach good news to the spiritually poor. Again, there often is an overlap there. I think we see this in the the book of James. James chapter 2, you've got the the scene where James is telling the church there, don't show partiality to the rich man. When the rich man enters and he's wearing the fine robes and he's got the expensive jewelry on, James says, don't say to him, come sit in the seat of honor. When the, the poor man comes in and he's dressed in tattered rags or he doesn't necessarily look the best or smell the best, don't tell him, well, you sit in the back here away from everyone else. And James says this in James 2, 5, listen, my beloved brothers, Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world? Again, is that physical poverty? Well, sure, it's it's partially physical poverty there. That fits the context of what James is talking about. But I think there's the spiritual poverty that's even greater there, the, the, the greater intention behind this, because he says God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith, right? To be rich not in money, to be rich not in possessions, to be rich not in your bank account, but to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. So again, I think Jesus is addressing the spiritually poor here when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like though? What does that mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it's an internal state more than an external state. It's not necessarily observable from the outside. Whether you're rich materially or poor materially has no standing on your kingdom citizenship. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor has has no bearing on whether or not you're a follower of Christ, but whether you are poor in spirit or not does have bearing on whether you are a kingdom citizen. To be poor in spirit is to be aware of your spiritual destitution, of your spiritual dependence upon God. As, As the beggar is left dependent on other people to give him what he needs for the basic essentials of life, so too we spiritually need to be dependent upon God to give us everything that we need for the basic essentials of eternal life. That we are in complete need of him to act because we are completely reliant on his grace and his mercy. It's an awareness of our sinfulness, of our separation from God. It's an awareness that we can't close that infinite gap that's been created between us and God. It's a consciousness of the fact that we are destitute without Christ. One commentator, Leon Morris, put it this way, the spiritually poor are people who have nothing, no resource but God. Having no resource but God. 
It's the opposite of the Pharisees of Jesus' day who wanted to boast in their righteousness, to boast in their ability to keep the law. This is the first characteristic of God's kingdom citizen, and that is that he sees himself in light of the law. He sees himself as Luther saw himself, as one who's incapable of keeping the law of God, who's incapable of achieving any sort of righteousness of our own, but has to point to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you because I, I have nothing of my own. That's what spiritual poverty looks like, and all of us at one point in time were there. And it would be good for us to recall that and remember that time. Our first point together this morning is that remember your spiritual poverty. Remember your spiritual poverty. I remember early on in my marriage, becoming aware of just how little my wife and I had when we went over to my mom's house for dinner, and I noticed that she was able to buy the expensive trash bags. It's when you know that you uh, have a long way to go. When you look at a trash bag and go, oh, you, you buy the nice ones, don't you? The stretchy ones, the ones that smell good when you open the trash can. That's when I became aware of how far we had to go in, in our lives, right? Well, men, we need to, to stay aware of our spiritual poverty. Even after we're saved, men, it's good for us to, to remind ourselves of where we once were. In fact, let's do that. Romans chapter 3. Grab your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 3. The first three chapters of the book of Romans basically is uh, Paul's indictment against everyone, against all of humanity, as he sets up our need for grace, our need for the gospel. And so pick up in verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. He's going to go off on all of these quotations from the book of Psalms here. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. At one point in time, all of us fit that bill. All of us were in line with Romans chapter 3 there. He continues in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped so that my boasting and my righteousness may be silenced and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the law is there to remind us of our spiritual poverty. The law is there to open our eyes to our spiritual poverty. And we live in a world, and all of us were here at one point in time, where we were blind. We were like the church in Laodicea. We were thinking that we were fine, that we had everything that we need, that we, we don't need Jesus, that we don't need the riches of his grace and mercy. We don't need forgiveness because after all, I'm a good person. But we were just like those at the church in Laodicea, which Jesus wrote to and said, you think that you are rich, but really you're poor. And it's by God's grace that he opens our eyes to understand through the law that we are in need of Jesus that we are in need of salvation. 
look across the page or maybe the next one over, Romans chapter 5. Paul there again describes who we were when we were in our state of, of spiritual poverty. Verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe, perhaps, for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him or by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, Paul just described us before Christ there, our spiritual poverty. We were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. One more place, if you will, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. You may know this passage well enough that you don't need to turn there, but if you don't, go ahead and grab your Bibles and flip over. Ephesians 2, Paul's describing who we are in Christ before, or who we are before Christ, rather. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now let me ask you a question. How much money does a dead man have in his bank account? None, right? in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, that was us before we became aware of our spiritual poverty. Before we became aware of our need for Jesus, we were, as Paul would say in, in another instance, our, our bellies were our gods. What we desired, our fleshly appetites, we gave into. And Paul says that's who we were. And we were by nature, though, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Who we are before Christ. And even those that want to say, yes, but I, I was a good person before Christ. Then we come to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where we see we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I'll clean up the metaphor there a little bit. Imagine if a, a man who had been homeless for decades, and he had had a, a single pillow that he had taken with him everywhere that he had gone and used it in every single place that he had laid his head down in the outdoors and never washed it once. And he comes by invitation to the White House to spend the night at the White House and he comes and he brings the president the pillow that he had been sleeping on in the streets for the last 20, 30 years and says, here, president, you use this tonight. It's my gift to you. How repulsive that would be, right? Well, that's our good deeds to God. That's what they're like to him in our state of spiritual poverty. Again, before Christ, this is where all of us were at one point in time or another. And it's good that we remember that. And it's good that we remember that because in remembering that, we're going to be driven to exalt Christ, to love Christ more. If you've ever heard the interview with the athlete, and it happens so often where they're talking about after winning a championship or getting a new contract, they'll talk about, you know, I just always want to remember where I've come from. Have you heard them talk about that, say that? I want to remember where I grew up. I didn't have anything where I grew up. And why are they saying that? Why do they want to remember that? Well, they want to remember that to be able to boast in their accomplishments, right? 
to be able to say, look what I've done, look where I've come. But men, we want to remember our spiritual poverty in order to boast in the accomplishments of Christ for us. To say, look what he's done. Look at his grace in my life. It's like the the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells the story where the both men go up to the temple to pray and the, the Pharisee goes into the temple and he prays with this loud voice and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other men, the extortioners, the ungodly. I thank you that I'm so righteous. I thank you that I give, that I tithe so much. I thank you, God, that I'm such a righteous person. And then you've got the, the tax collector, the, the, the publican, who's standing off in the distance because he doesn't dare, near, dare draw near the, to the, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, and he won't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he beats his breast in, in mourning and in sorrow over his sin, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the man who understands his spiritual poverty. And Jesus says as much. He says, that's the man who went home justified. We need to be like that man. I said it last week over and over and over again, men, that the Beatitudes are ultimately a a sermon about who? Jesus. This first one's no exception to that rule. Because as we recognize our spiritual poverty, men, and as we remember our spiritual poverty, this destitute state that we all were in, in at one point in time before Christ, it's not meant to shame us, and it's not meant to uh, give us feelings of, of condemnation, but rather it's meant to cause us to be more grateful and thankful for Jesus. It's meant to cause us to love Jesus more, to exalt Christ more in our lives because of what he has done for us, because he is the only hope for us in our spiritual poverty. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul is in the context talking about money. He's talking about giving. He's talking about material support for the churches. But he says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Is Paul talking about physical wealth in 2 Corinthians 8, 9? Not anymore, is he? He's spinning the context, talking about physical wealth and in terms of giving and in terms of having the means to be able to give. And he's saying, remember Jesus, who, though he was rich. Now let's talk about the wealth that Christ had. Philippians 2, right? Have this mindset amongst yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God. Okay, that's the standard of, of rich, of, of, of wealth that we're talking about here, which has nothing to do with money. Though he existed in the form of God, did not count, here's that next phrase, equality with God, right? That Jesus in his richness was enjoying perfect fellowship, perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit, and had been from eternity past to the moment of his incarnation. That Jesus in his equality with God was basking in the full beauty, in the full majesty, in the full glory of the Godhead, something that at his incarnation he was going to have to veil, That Jesus, in 
the, the equality with God and the fullness of God was dwelling with the, the Father in the Son without any need or any experience of any cold or heat or exposure or any discomfort from eternity past to the moment of his incarnation. See, when we talk about the wealth of Christ, what we're talking about is something that far exceeds anything that this world could offer. What's more, he had the wealth of his perfect righteousness, sinless perfection. And he came to earth and he continued to live in that sinless perfection for 30 to 33 years. And then it says he became poor. Yes, he became poor at the incarnation because he became a child and he was dependent upon Mary and Joseph to sustain his life. Yes, he became poor in his upbringing, in his growing. It says in, in Luke's gospel that he was growing in knowledge. And so there was even a, a taken on limitation there in his humanity that he had to continue to, to grow in knowledge. The God who is omniscient in veiling himself there was, was poor in that sense. And yes, he was poor in the sense that uh, he was uh, the, the, the child of a carpenter. And so even materially, there was a, a poverty there that our Savior entered into. Yes, he was poor in the sense that he called these, these fishermen, right? Not the, the elite of the elite, but the, the fishermen to, to be his followers. And yes, he was poor in the sense that he was patient with them and, and I would have been right with them to teach them not once or twice or three or four or five, but multiple times the same thing over and over again. I mean, even just think about how many times he had to tell them, hey, I'm, I'm gonna go be crucified and they still didn't get it, right? Yes, he was poor because as he went to the garden of Gethsemane, one of his followers, one of those that he was patient with, would come and betray him with a kiss and turn him over to the Romans. Yes, he was poor as he stood before Pilate, even as we've been reading in our daily Bible reading. And you have Pilate presuming to have an authority over the Son of God. But we see the, the pinnacle of his poverty at the cross. We see the pinnacle of his poverty, as Paul would put it in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even, he says, death on a cross. This humiliation of our Savior, crucified naked between two thieves, mocked, but more than that, the sinless one, the perfectly righteous one, took upon himself our sin, our guilt, and bore the wrath of God against that so that we would be righteous. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, there's that righteous standard that God has that all of us in our spiritual poverty lack the ability to meet. We are, if you'll go with me on this illustration, we are overdrawn in our bank accounts by an insurmountable amount. And no matter how many deposits of our righteousness we put back in that bank account, the reality is daily we are accruing more and more and more debt there. We are borrowing against our debt over and over and over and over and over again, such that any righteous deed that we do is like bringing our pennies and trying to pay off the national debt by contributing a few cents every day. See, we lack the ability to pay this debt. We needed one who could step in for us and pay it for us. And that was that gift and that offering and that provision that we have in Christ. 
the one who lived that perfectly righteous life under the law that he was truly blameless, sinless. And yet he was willing to go to the cross and to take our debt upon himself and to transfer his righteousness, his perfection into our account so that we would be righteous. It's Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, yes? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might in him become what? The righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. Jesus opens up his routing number, so to speak, and says to us, transfer your debt into my account. And by the way, here's my righteousness on your account. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, Paul put it this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. There it is. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's good news, but the news gets better than that. And here's why. Because it's not just that Jesus pardoned our sin, forgave us. It's not just that Jesus paid our debt and put us on neutral ground again with God. No, it's so much more than that. Grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. See, Jesus has not just paid our debt, but he's provided for us everything that we need from now on for life and godliness. He's given us access to his inexhaustible riches that we now have in Christ so that now as we stand here as believers, as brothers in Christ, we don't need to fear all of a sudden racking up another insurmountable debt and being guilty again. No, he's paid it once and for all and supplied a, a super abundance of his grace to us now that we can live in. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse three. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to, notice the language, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might, not, or might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you notice the language of the the riches of the grace of God that we experience because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us? See, it's so much more than just not guilty. It's innocent and adoption. It's sonship. It's being made a co-heir with Christ of this 
inheritance that now we have that's guaranteed for us by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just Paul here. How about Peter? We studied it last semester, but let's, let's go look at it again just as a, a refresher. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, here's the language, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day time. See, men, when we're saved, it's not as though we win the lottery and here's $5 million because somebody who wins $5 million in the lottery may be able to get themselves out of debt, but all the while that money, those resources that they have are going to be dwindling and dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. See, no, what we've been given in Christ is inexhaustible grace that will never dwindle, that will never run dry, that will never decrease. It's not as though that God has given you a, a certain measure of grace for you as an individual and said, well, don't run this out. If once this is gone, it's gone. It's inexhaustible. He has come in to our spiritual poverty and filled us up to overflowing. One more place. I want you to look Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight. Verse 30, Romans chapter eight, verse 30. Pay attention to the tense of the verbs here. And those whom he predestined, okay? That's past tense. We can get there. That's eternity past that God predestined us to be his sons. Okay, past tense, got it. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, that's past tense. That we at one point in time, by God's irresistible grace, received the call of salvation. You heard the gospel. Your eyes were opened to your spiritual poverty. He regenerated you. He gave you the faith to believe. Past tense. Okay, I get that. And those whom he called, he also justified. Well, I was justified, you could say, at the cross or justified at the moment of salvation. Past tense, though. Okay, I get that. I was declared righteous through faith in Christ. But then he says, those whom he justified, he also, what's the next word? Glorified. I mean, I'll tell you what, I got up this morning and looked in the mirror. I hope I'm not already glorified. Why is that in the past tense? Because it's as good as done, right? It's because the, the wealth, the riches that you have received in Christ is again, not just putting you on neutral ground and saying, good luck, don't screw up again. No, but it's a, a super abundance of grace that is secured for you that inheritance that Peter said is undefiled, unfading, and imperishable that's kept in heaven for us who are being guarded by God's power through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, Paul puts justified in the past tense, but he also puts glorified in the past tense because our glorification is just as good as our justification is because it's accomplished in Christ. But it's not just that in Romans 8. I can't stop there. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is God, will God, is, is the implication? No, God is the one who justifies us. Who's gonna condemn 
Will Christ Jesus, will the the one who is the righteous judge, is he going to condemn us? No. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died for us. More than that, who was raised and who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, continually pleading his riches, his righteousness for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, Paul's anticipating the question, look, Paul, we're dying. People are killing us because we're Christians. Can that separate me from the love of Christ? If, if, if Nero takes me and dips me in tar and lights me on fire in his garden, Paul, am I, am I still secure in Christ? Paul says, no, that's not going to separate you, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, our accounts have been filled up to overflowing. We will never again experience that that state of being destitute. When God looks at you, he sees the riches of his son filled up in your account to overflowing. We've been alluding to it. Let me state it explicitly now. Jesus is our spiritual benefactor. He's the one that we need in our state of spiritual poverty. And that should give us a great confidence, great hope, and great joy. Point number two this morning is this. Rejoice in your spiritual benefactor. Rejoice in your spiritual benefactor. Which to do that, right, requires that we understand first and foremost our spiritual poverty. If we don't understand our spiritual poverty, we're not going to understand our need for Christ to be our spiritual benefactor. We're not going to understand our our need for him to fill up our accounts to overflowing. We have to understand not just that we were spiritually impoverished, but the depths of that, right? Right? There's two types of benefactors out there. There's the one that comes along to somebody who's in need, who has done a, a, a certain amount, but just needs a little bit of help to get over the hump, right? That's not the type of benefactor that Jesus is. The other type of benefactor is the person that comes along and they find somebody who has no ability to help themselves at all, has nothing to bring to the table, and they help them with everything. That's the type of benefactor that Christ is. He's come along and not said, well, you've done a a decent job. Let me just help you out finishing that. Let me just get you over the hump there. No, Jesus meets us in our destitute barrenness with nothing to our name. And he says, everything that you need, I have and I will give to you. See, that's the benefactor that Christ is. And this is why Paul would come to say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul would say, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, which he could have. Remember, Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He studied under Gamaliel. Paul was not a, a dumb guy. He was a smart guy. 
But he said, look, I'm not going to rely on intelligence or wisdom or intellect or anything that I can boast in. But instead, he said, I came to you and I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that is the only thing that will answer our need in our spiritual poverty. Is Christ and Christ crucified. Paul understood that that's what everything had to be about, not the peripheral stuff. It had to be about Jesus because Jesus is the one that we need to, to fill up what we can't fill up. He's the one that we need to meet the righteous standard that we can't meet. This is why the apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter one, when people are coming to Paul going, hey, this guy's preaching Jesus because he wants to be more famous than you. When Paul says that some are preaching Christ out of rivalry, out of, out of jealousy, Paul says, great, if he's preaching Jesus, let him go. I'm going to rejoice in that. And Paul would go on to say, look, I've come to learn that my entire life needs to be about Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen, if I'm going to be here, then I need to be all about Jesus. When Paul says to live is Christ, that means every single arena of my life is about Jesus. My identity in Christ governs every single part of my life because of what he's done for me. I mean, think about this, man. Some of you who have a mortgage payment. Imagine if somebody came to you right now and said, well, you know what? I'm going to pay off the rest of your house. I'm going to pay off the rest of your mortgage. Or maybe some, some of you have a, a, a car payment or multiple car payments. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pay off all of the, what you owe on, on your vehicles. Or some of you are, are putting students through college right now or thinking about the day that you're going to have to put students through college. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, you know what, I'm going to take care of all of the student debt. And I'm going to, I'm going to scholarship your kids that are going to be in school in 5, 10, 15 years. I'm going to pay for all of it. You're not going to owe a thing at the end. Can you imagine how you would feel about that person? The person that came into you, your life and said, show me all your debt. I'm going to wipe it all out. Can you imagine the love that you would have for that person? The devotion that you would have to that person? The allegiance that you would have to that person? And yet, guys, what Jesus has done is so much bigger than that. Now, imagine if that same person told you this. You know what? I've just come into some, some incredible wealth in my life, and my riches right now are essentially inexhaustible. So here's what I want you to do. I wiped out all your debt. If you'll go tell everyone that you can that, that I'm here and that I'm willing to do that if they'll come to me, then I'm, I'm willing to wipe out everyone else's debt that you can go and, and let them know as well. My guess is that you'd be going home and knocking on some doors in your neighborhood, wouldn't you? You'd be picking up the phone, calling your friends and your family and your loved ones. You'd be having conversations at work with a coworker that you know needs their debt paid off, wouldn't you? And yet again, guys, Christ has done so much more than that. So much more than that. And so I, I've been asking myself this week, and do I have that same level of joy and excitement about what Jesus has done for me as I would if somebody came into my life and paid off all my debt? 
or said, hey, I'm going to pay for your five kids to go to college. It's been convicting. We should have that much excitement and joy. I mean, Jesus has done far more than anything that, that, that money can impact. Because he's dealt with my spiritual, my eternal debt. And he's paid that off. And he's put me in a position of, of overflowing righteousness. Not my own, but, but his righteousness. And that's never, ever going to dwindle. What an amazing thought it is. We can have joy in our spiritual benefactor. You know, later in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 19, there's a young man or a rich man who comes to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you can already sense there that this man's not there in understanding his spiritual poverty, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, he goes along with them. Well, you know, keep the commandments and you'll inherit eternal life. And the guy says, done. I've done them all. Check. Clearly he wasn't here for the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus looks back at him. He says, okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and take all that you have. I want you to sell it all. And I want you to give it to the poor. And Matthew records that the man went away sad for he had great possessions. But men, that man's problem had nothing to do with his physical wealth. It had everything to do with his spiritual poverty. He didn't understand his need for Jesus. He didn't understand his need to trust Jesus above and beyond everything that he had. The, the reason why his wealth was a problem was because that's where his faith was. He needed to trust Jesus because the spiritual problem that he had is the same spiritual problem that all of us at one point in time in our lives had. And that is that we were destitute apart from Christ. So that's why Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount, opens up the Beatitudes, frames the whole Beatitudes with this understanding that we need to come to Christ. We need to prepare for the kingdom by making sure that we have come to terms with our spiritual poverty, recognized him as our spiritual benefactor, and that the impact that that has in our life is we continue to live our lives poor in spirit, relying upon the Lord, humble, not boastful, not proud, not saying, look at everything that I've done. Look where I was and where I've come. We'll say, look where I was and where Christ has brought me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, and that sounds so hollow in light of everything that you've done for us, but we do truly thank you for the sacrifice that you provided for us. That though we were spiritually destitute, barren, that we were spiritual beggars, that we needed everything, Lord, that you met us there and that you provided all of it for us. That at the cross, you took our debt to yourself and gave us your riches, your righteousness. That at the cross, you guaranteed for us a future inheritance so that we might be co-heirs with you. Heirs of this inheritance that's unfading, that's, un, that's imperishable, that's unchangeable that's kept in heaven for us, that will never decrease one ounce. Jesus, what an amazing thing you did for us. God, we're thankful for that. I, I pray that this week we would be mindful of our spiritual poverty, God, so that it would drive us to be more grateful, more thankful 
more excited about Jesus because the reality is he has said, look, I'm willing to do this for anyone who will come to me in faith. So Lord, let us go out as ambassadors to say, I've got such good news for you, good news that you need to hear because you have a debt that you can't pay, but I know the one who can pay it for you. God, give us those opportunities, I pray, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.